Today's sermon's entitled, Your Life is Bread. Now, we've gone through several different uh, parts of this series, uh, three parts exactly, and we're going on to part number four. And part number four is going to talk about giving our life to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we take and look at everything that Jesus has done for us. He atoned for his sins. He died on the cross. He rose again. And we take that information, that glorious and wonderful thing that he did, sacrifice for us, and we offer our love to the world, a similar love to the one that Jesus showed on the cross. And we tell the world that we love Jesus by serving them, by going out and finding out what their needs are and uh, just helping them out and pointing them to the Lord Jesus Christ, the reason why we are helping them out. My name is Reverend Derek Giller. I'm the pastor here at McKees Mills Baptist Church, and I want to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. So far, we've talked about so many different things that ultimately when Jesus broke the bread, symbolism, things that it ultimately means. But I think the most important thing of all is we got to realize that we do love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we are called as God's children to get out in the world and to serve and to love the people of this world in the way that Christ did as he demonstrated on the cross. I got thinking about, you know, when the Son of Man returns, when Jesus comes back in all of his glory, and I got thinking about that, oh my goodness, won't that be a wonderful and beautiful time? But who amongst us really wants to be placed on the wrong side of Jesus? I mean, we're told in scriptures that Jesus is going to return, and he's going to take the sheep and place on one side, and the goats on another side. And the sheep are going to go to heaven and be with him, and the goats are going to go to hell. Who wants to be in the category with the goats? Nobody does. At his right-hand side. Uh, You know, we all want to be on his right-hand side and and acknowledge the sheep. But will you be? And that's the question. Who amongst us doesn't dream of one day sitting at the master's table as one of the sheep and ultimately, you know, just having a really good time at the banquet and Jesus Christ looking at us and saying, you are my children. I love you very much. And you've made it into heaven. And this is awesome. Who doesn't dream of that? I know I do. Can you imagine going to heaven where there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more anguish, no more death, and above all, no more sin? That will be a glorious day. And I look very much forward to that day. While we acknowledge, though, how we get to heaven, we acknowledge that we cannot do so through our work specifically. We can't do that, but what we do is we get to heaven through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we want to get a seat at that table, we must believe that Jesus died and rose again for our sins. That is true. But at the same time, for some Christians, that truth leads to laissez-faire. It leads to lukewarmness. They sit back and say, well, if I'm already going to heaven, then why do anything for the Lord? And Jesus answers that question. He says, you know what, ultimately, our faith, Faith, James says specifically, it cannot be the kind of faith that you sit back and say, I'm not going to do anything. Faith has an action component to it. James 2.18. One of the signs that we are saved through grace by faith is the fact that we are living our lives for the Lord. In other words, those who are not saved, they cannot stop sinning. They're still slaves of sin, according to Apostle Paul. For us who are born again, we are more than capable of stop sinning. Why? Because Jesus Christ has already conquered sin on the cross. He's already died for all the wages of sin, which is death. And now we have the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to not sin anymore. The love that we express towards one another, I think, that comes from God is an expression that shows we are Christians in the first place. It's not easy to love people. Let's be honest about that. 
People have different goals, dreams, and desires, ultimately. And, and it's very difficult to love them, especially when they want to be your enemies. That's even more difficult. But we are called to love everybody. And as a result of that calling, we're only able to fulfill it. Why? Because Jesus Christ gives us that ability. Christ's love, as he demonstrated on the cross, compels us to no longer sin, but instead, at the best of our abilities, to strive to tell the whole world how much God loves them. You know, above all, we got to put the needs of other people, Apostle Paul says, first. So, yes, faith must have an action component. To avoid being guilty of neglecting the hungry or thirsty that Jesus calls us. He says, you know what? If you feed the least of my kingdom, you've done it unto me. So Jesus says, looks at all of these sheep and the goats and he says, oh, by the way, I know which one you are based on the way that you responded to my glorious message. And are you feeding the hungry? Are you feeding the poor? Are you helping those people that are downtrodden? Are you reflecting God's grace and love throughout your life? Those are all beautiful barometers that you're actually saved. Because if you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, then you're going to want to supernaturally to give to the world God's love. You'll want that. And when you see somebody ultimately, you know, who is hurting, somebody who needs a helping hand, you're going to be the first to say, absolutely, I'm all in. But here's the problem. Even for Christians, it's very difficult, I think, to turn away from our selfish ambition and to stop being inwardly focused. You know, we can have lots of dreams, goals, and desires, and we love thinking about those. We like thinking about our future and our plans and the things that we want to do this week and next week or this year or next year. We're really good at doing that. But what about the needs and the goals of other people? On our needs and our goals, ultimately, it's very difficult for us to look at other people and put their priorities above that of our own. Even in North America, there's a great need out there. Absolutely. There's lots of poor people in our midst. Now, I live in in, uh, New Brunswick, and there's lots of people, if you go to the city, that are homeless, like this individual here, who's just looking for a helping hand. And the reality is a lot of people just pass this individual by. There are lots of individuals with emotional, financial, social, health needs that genuinely need us to witness as Christians to them. They need to know that God has not forgotten them. What will it take for God's family to see and respond to these needs, though? As bearers of the image of Christ who sacrificed himself ultimately for them, what would it take for us to see the other individual as valuable to God? How much would it take to see this homeless person, for instance, and see the image of Christ contained within him? How much would it take for us ultimately to set aside our busy schedules and say, you know what, I'm going to stop. I'm going to help this person out. What if you have somebody in your family who's going through a crisis? Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's marital. What would it take for you to stop your busy schedule and say, I'm going to go visit you as my brother or my sister or my aunt or my uncle, or maybe it's a neighbor or a friend or a colleague and say, I really want to help you. We have received Ultimately, I think many wonderful, beautiful things from the Lord Jesus Christ, our good shepherd. Uh, why don't we share that with the world? And we should, and we ought to. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, with the comfort you have received from me, share that with everybody. Are we doing that? Are we really? And it's tough for us, isn't it? Despite the fact that we are all ordinary, we're called to do extraordinary things. You think about that for a moment. 
The truth is, is that God uses the people who are ordinary, it says in the Bible, the people who are not of consequence, the people that are not necessarily always rich or famous or powerful or or beautiful. Jesus ends up using a whole bunch of people as his hands and feet who are just ordinary people to reach and to do extraordinary things. Are not the cups of cold water that we offer in Jesus' name, aren't they awesome? Aren't they amazing? Aren't they something that we can celebrate? Isn't ultimately the cups that we give to other people, the goodness and the kindness that we share with one another, isn't that a reflection of what's in our hearts? I think it should be, ultimately. And what would it take for us to see that our good deeds matter to other individuals, especially to God? Is it not a powerful testimony ultimately for us to sit back and say, I will give you a cup of cold water? Why? Because God gave me one. I think it's beautiful. I think we must do this. I think also when we do this, not only do we help the other individual by showing a witness of God's love, but we also store treasures in heaven, Matthew 6, 19 to 24, that can never, ever go away. You see, you can plan for your retirement, and that's beautiful, by the way, and that's necessary. But truthfully, you can get a whole bunch of wealth and amass a whole bunch of things. But in the end, when we die, what do we take to heaven? None of the material things, that's for sure. But we do take our eternal treasures. So when we see people and we want to reach out to them and help them, we ought to do so because that's how we store those treasures in heaven by serving God unconditionally and looking at the people around us and saying, I love you because God loves you. And I want to talk a little bit about what it takes to be given. What will it take us as Christians, who tend to be sometimes a little bit lukewarm, what would it take us to reach out into our community, see the needs, and do something about it? So the first point I want to make is is, is reaching out. I want to make the point that we got to give out of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. We take that love we've received and we give it to our community. What would that ultimately take? I got thinking about Peter. And it says in Peter, ultimately, you know, you have this beautiful story where Peter's talking about, um, uh, he, he's denying Jesus Christ three times. And, and he was already told by Jesus Christ, oh, by the way, Peter, you're going to do this. This is going to happen. And Peter, of course, said, no, Lord, I will never do it. You know what? No matter what happens to you, I will always stand by your side. That's what he told Jesus. But You know, in the courtyard, he denies Jesus three times and the rooster crows and he goes away and he weeps absolutely bitterly. He swears curses upon himself. I don't know him. My goodness, that's quite a statement, isn't it? He went outside the courtyard after this and he weeps absolutely bitterly. You know, it's really perplexing to consider this. Jesus said this, you are Peter. On this rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is not saying that Peter's going to build the church. He's not saying that. He says, I, Jesus Christ, will build the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. But you, Peter, are going to be my key leader. You're going to be one of the inner three. You're going to be the one who's going to spur on spreading the gospel news all over the countryside. And Peter, you're going to be incredibly important to me as you serve. This is what Peter was told. And can you imagine, here this same individual who's told, oh, by the way, I'll give you the keys of heaven. He's the one who denies Christ three times. Can you imagine that? How could somebody as one of the inner three disciples fail so miserably? How could he sit back and say to somebody, I don't even know Christ? Can you imagine that? Indeed, Christ's uh, prediction was accurate. 
Peter has his mind focused on the things of this world. He was afraid. Who wouldn't be? The truth is they were trying Jesus Christ, and they're about to put him on a cross and execute him. And, of course, Peter's sitting back saying, I'm scared for my very life. I'm sure he was thinking about that. And he sat back and said, I don't want to admit I know Jesus because maybe then I'm going to be thrown on the trial, and I'm going to be executed too as well. We know that later on, Peter actually is executed upside down on a cross. We know that because Christ predicted it, and it happened. But at this point in his walk, in his journey, without the Holy Spirit, he's sitting back saying, I'm really scared. Later on, he would not be with the power of the Holy Spirit. He'd sit back and say, wow, I'm no longer scared. But at this point, Peter is. And despite his initial denial of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have this beautiful story where Peter now afterwards when Christ raises from the dead three days later, he's running towards the tomb with John. He's saying, I have heard that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. His body is not in the tomb, at least. Peter wasn't sure if he was alive, but he at least knew his body wasn't in the tomb. And he said, I got to go see for myself. Is he really gone from the grave? So he's running with John. And, and you know what? The reality is, is that he's getting this news that Jesus Christ is alive again. And then later on, Jesus actually appears to Peter individually, it says in Scripture. And it's like, wow, John 20, 19 to 23. He appears to him and he talks with him. And on top of that, he was most likely there when Jesus appears to all the disciples. And Thomas says, you know what? I believe I see you, Jesus. But Jesus says, oh, hold on a minute, Thomas. You don't fully believe. I know you don't because you said until I put my, my hands in your side, until I see physical evidence and touch you, then I'm never going to believe. And he was likely there for that episode, Peter was. Peter had experienced the risen Lord. He certainly had. But the problem is, is he was still broken. You know, I, I'm sure he was thrilled that Jesus Christ was alive. I'm sure he was. I'm sure when he ran to that tomb with John and he saw the empty tomb and he got the news that Jesus Christ was alive and then got to see him, he probably rejoiced. He probably sat back and said, this is awesome. Yes, that is true. But Peter was so broken that he had done a disservice to God. He had done a service to his one and only son, Jesus Christ, and his master that he has served for the last three years, he denied three times. He was so distraught in his own inability to stay true to the faith that he thought, you know what? God's not going to want me to serve in his kingdom. I didn't serve his son very well. And the truth is, is I fall short of the Lord's glory. And as a result, I'm disqualified. I should not be serving anymore. So he goes and he picks up a net and he says, I'm going to go back to what I know. I know how to fish. I know I'm a fisherman. I always fished. And as a result, that Peter said, I'm going to throw my net in the water and I'm going to go back to my old profession. He was broken, absolutely broken. And he said, you know what? I'm not useful in God's kingdom anymore. He was accompanied by Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. They go to fishing, and Peter's there with all of them, and they're trying to comfort Peter. And he's sitting back saying, I'm useless. I'm worthless. I can't lead anymore. I'm not good in God's kingdom. And he's throwing his net into the water, and he's not catching anything. And Peter's just getting more frustrated. He's sitting back saying, oh, my goodness, I'm not even good at fishing anymore. That was my profession. I'm lousy at it too. And Peter's sitting back and he's struggling. And he's saying, when am I ever going to get a blessing? And of course, we know that Jesus shows up on the shore. And he tells Peter, throw your net on the other side of the boat. 
Peter's thinking about this, and he says, whoa, I've had this happen before when Jesus told me to throw my net on the other side of the boat, and I know what happens. And sure enough, as soon as he threw his net on the other side of the boat, he caught so many fish, him and the disciples, that they couldn't even pull them ashore. They had a hard time. You know, the net's not breaking. And Peter soon realized, okay, by Christ's command, I can do anything and everything through his command. But without him, I can't do anything, including what I used to do. The turning point occurs at this particular time. In the morning when Christ instructed the disciples to cast their net, he actually was very successful in doing so. But this is true for Peter. He sat back and he said, you know what? The truth is I still didn't feel worthy. Okay, yes, Jesus, whatever you tell me I can be successful at, but I've still disqualified myself from service. So Jesus sits down with the other apostles and sits down with Peter, like we see in the picture. And he sits down one-on-one with Peter. And he looks at Peter and he says, do you love me? And of course, Peter says, of course, Lord, I love you. He said, well, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Serve. Do you love me? Serve. He says it three times. And at the end of it, Peter gets absolutely flustered. And he sits back and he's deeply broken. And he's really, at this point, insulted almost. And he looks at Jesus and says, of course, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus says, well, then get back to serving. I gave you the keys to heaven. I told you how to serve. I gave you the ability. I told you the rock. You are the rock upon which I will build my church. Now get back to leading where you're supposed to be. See, there's an awful lot of Christians out there, unfortunately, that have gone through difficult times within churches. They have struggled in their leadership roles, and and they've got into a conflict, and it might be their own fault or it might not be. A lot of cases, it's not. And as a result of that, they've walked away from ministry. Or maybe they've done some heinous sin or sins, and they've looked at it and said, I've sinned way too much. I can't serve in God's kingdom at all. And Jesus is almost telling us in this story, get back to serving. Get back to serving. You know, Jesus looked at Peter and said, I did not tell you to fish. I didn't tell you to go out and physically catch, you know, fish that swim in the water. I told you to go out and fish men. I told you to go out and spread the good news. I gave you the ability to do so, Peter. Now go do what I asked because I still love you. I forgive you, Jesus was saying. I know you denied me three times, but I forgive you. Now get back to kingdom work. Is that what you need to hear today? Do you need to hear the truth that the love of Christ compels you to serve, to live, to do whatever he asks? Those who are born again of the water and spirit are invited to use their spiritual gifts to do whatever task the Lord asks us to do. And we've got to just serve with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and trust in him. That when he says, cast your net on the other side, do something a little bit different or return to something you used to do, you can actually be successful because through Jesus Christ, all things are possible, but without him, nothing is. And the truth is when we serve in this kingdom, in God's kingdom, it's really tough, isn't it? Let's be honest about that. The powers of this dark world and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms is what we face. That's not an easy task, especially considering we're always facing the constant temptation of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and pride of life, 1 John 2, 16. Like Peter, Christ's love compels us. 
You know, the truth is, is that his transformative grace and love and forgiveness and mercy should inspire us, give us passion, give us desire to get out in the world and tell them, my goodness, Jesus Christ has treated me incredibly well, far more better than I deserve. And he wants to do the same with you. Why don't we tell the world the struggle for supremacy in our hearts only gives way the moment that we say, I love Jesus more than I love myself or my family or the world. I put him first. So if he asks me to do something, I'm all in. I'm all in because the results are his and not mine. I'm only called to serve in whatever way he asks. So I do it with all my heart. Is this where you are at? Have you got a fragmented heart? Do you have a lukewarm heart? Are you sitting back saying, you know what? I just don't want to serve. I'm too scared. I'm too nervous. I'm afraid I will fail. I am afraid that I've got other interests that are far more important to me. Is that where you're at? Well, stop being lukewarm and sit back and say, I want to serve. However, the truth is that surrendering to the one who ultimately redeemed us is going to require us to give our very lives to him, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 or 20. But the truth is, is that as we give our life to him, then you know what? It's the love that we receive from him that we can share with the world that is so easy to do when we get it from him first. And we got to get the love of Jesus we got to get love and grace and mercy that we get from Christ. We, the only way we're going to share that with the world is to experience it ourselves. But we got to open our hearts and say, Lord, I'm broken. I'm broken. I got some problems, Lord. I got some sin that's holding me back. Or I got some brokenness, Lord. I got some fragmented motives in my heart. Some are for you, Lord, and some are for the world, and some are for me. But I know they're all supposed to be for you. Help me, O Lord. Cry out to God. Tell him, help me, Abba, Father, to get my act together and to move in your direction and do whatever you say. His love, Christ's love on the cross should compel us to do that. Are you willing? I want to go to the second part and the second point that I want to make very quickly, and that is I think we should be given out of love that we get from Christ, we should really start loving this world so much more. I've talked about this so far in the sermon, but I really want to go even further. I want to tell you a story about two disciples right after the empty tomb experience happened. Now, we don't know who these two disciples actually were. We don't know their names. Ultimately, most commentaries say they were not part of the 12, and I believe that is true because later on it talks about these two disciples going back to the 11. Of course, Judas Iscariot's long gone out of the picture, so there's 11 apostles left. So these two obviously were other apostles or disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're having a little journey. So they're really distraught. They're kind of confused. They're sitting back almost like Peter was, hurt and broken. And they're sitting back and they're saying, you know what? The reality is, is that as they walk, they say, you know what? Let's talk about everything that's happened over the last three days. It's been like a whirlwind. And we are following our master. Now our master, is he no more? Maybe, possibly, or maybe he's not. Maybe he's actually alive. Which one is it? And what should we do? As they're talking and they're really perplexed and they're downcast in everything that they're talking about, especially the crucifixion, Jesus all of a sudden appears amongst them. And he looks at both of them and he says, what are you talking about? What are you really talking about? Now, here's the wonderful part of the story. God kept their eyes closed, these two disciples. Neither one of them recognized Jesus. Why? I do not know. 
It had to be spiritual. It had to be supernatural. It had to be God's intervention because ultimately they would have known their master. Absolutely. But at this point, they can't recognize him for, for supernatural reasons. They can't really see him. When Jesus asked them, what are you doing as you're walking along? Their faces all of a sudden go right to the ground and they proceed to tell them, we are incredibly sor- sorrowful. We are broken in so many ways because our master's no more. He's a prophet and powerful word indeed. And he preached all my goodness how he preached and he did miracles in the name of God and we were so excited but he was sentenced to death by the chief priest and the rulers and he was subsequently crucified dashing all their hope that he was going to be the one who would redeem all of Israel and they're sitting back saying now what are we left with what are we going to do we we gave everything we followed him we don't know what to do they went on the road and they told Christ that some of the women had found an empty tomb And they saw a vision of an angel who said that Jesus Christ was alive. And they're sitting back saying, I'm not sure what to do with that. Is that really true? A lot of people at that time, we got to realize, didn't believe the testimony of women. What a shame. Definitely wrong, but they didn't. And as a result of that, they're saying, do we have hope? They're asking each other. And while their faces are downcast, thinking that he's long gone, they're asking, is it possible? Could he actually be alive? Jesus looks at them and he says, you know what? You don't have a lot of faith, do you? You don't understand. If you only understood the prophets, if you only understood what they wrote, if you only went back and reflected on it, you would have known. All this had to happen to Jesus because that's how God's glory would shine. That's how the atonement for the sins of humanity would happen. This has actually been predicted. And you know the outcome. If you know the prediction, he was saying to these two, then you know the outcome. And you know these two ladies are not lying. They're telling you the truth. Jesus Christ is alive. It's getting late in the evening. These two individuals still aren't convinced by any stretch of the imagination. So Jesus sits down with them and he breaks bread with them. This is very uncommon because Jesus was the guest. The other two were the host. And the fact that Jesus sat down and he broke the bread was very unlikely in this culture. But he sat down as if the table and it was his, as if the food was his, which it was. Everything was his. So he's sitting down as the host, even though they don't realize it, and he breaks the bread, and he gives thanks. And the moment that he does, their eyes are open, and they realize it's Jesus. It's Jesus in front of them. And they're smiling, and they're excited, and they're seeing their master, and they realize who he is. Yes, he is alive, exactly as the prophets told them. And then Jesus vanishes. They head back to Jerusalem and they get even better news. Not only did they see themselves personally Jesus alive, but it wasn't a ghost by any stretch of the imagination because all 11 of the apostles are saying, we met Jesus too. So they're verified. They're saying, oh my goodness, the hope we have now because he is alive. You know, in this encounter, We do learn that in our trials and our tribulations, we've got to be very careful not to get broken. The truth is is that there are many things that we will go through in life that are tough, and they are difficult to go through, and they can smash and break our hearts into a million pieces and leave us without hope if we don't keep our eyes fixed on Christ. When our faith falters and our hearts are broken, rendering us incredibly weak, our approach must be ultimately to look. Jesus is always there. He's indivisibly present, absolutely everywhere, Psalms 139. 
The truth is, he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And even in our most difficult times, yes, he is right there with us. The Lord often communicates to us when we are still, though. The truth is, is that when we go through trials and tribulations, sometimes we become so broken that we want to give up or we become determined to figure out our own way out of our problems. But the best thing that we could possibly do is sit and be still like this lady you see in the rain and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to handle this, Lord? What are you telling me to do? It's almost like Elijah when he goes through that great big storm. And when he finally gets out and he realizes that that God's voice isn't in any of the storm. And then he hears a gentle whisper and he hears God's voice and he rejoices. This is what we have to do. We have to listen through the Holy Spirit, God's word. We have to listen through God's holy word. We've got to listen for his voice in all that we do. Amid the storms and tribulations, Jesus invites us always to be still. Psalms 46.10, God says, be still and know that I am God. We've got to be still. We've got to listen attentively. We've got to understand our place in the grand narrative. Peter had to know, you're still valuable. Peter had to know, yes, you are broken, and yes, you sinned, and yes, you did things that were wrong. But the truth is, Peter, you are the rock upon which I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not touch it. Peter, you're still valuable, and I still want you to serve, because if I was going to ask somebody sinless to serve, they never would. I would never ask anybody, because only the Lord is sinless. We are not. The truth is, is that we don't get disqualified from service every time we sin, because if we did, not one of us would ever serve. Peter needed to know that, and I think we need our eyes to be open to the truth that God always works for the good of those who love ultimately him. And I think it's when we recognize that Jesus Christ is present in all of our circumstances that we don't lose our hope. But instead, in difficult times, we can smile and look up and say, I love you, Lord Jesus. Now, what do you want me to do? The Lord's glory can and must be reflected, though, I think, through our words, thoughts, deeds, and actions. Adopting a posture of openness to love, whatever love that God wants to give us. Amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for loving me. And even if you want to discipline me, Hebrews 12, 6, please do so because it will be for my good. Whatever comes my way, God, I will gladly accept as long as you are with me, which I know you are, and you'll never leave me. And as long as you hold me up, I will stand in the faith, and I will serve. Do you have that attitude? I know there are many Christians that certainly they don't have that attitude at all, not even close. You know, he he takes the bread, Jesus Christ does, and he breaks it, and he gives thanks. Similarly, I think we're called to do some radical love. I think we should go out in the world and say, you know what? I can remember a whole bunch of bad times that that Jesus Christ came, my good shepherd, put the broken piece of my heart back together again, and helped me to stand in the most fiercest of storms. And I wouldn't have survived without him. And I want to tell you, the world, how I did survive through his love. We've got to be that kind of witness. We've got to take the love, the radical love that we have gotten from the Lord Jesus Christ, the same radical love that he gave to Peter, even though he sinned, he showed him grace and forgiveness. We've got to do that same thing to the world. We've got to share our love and practice radical hospitality. We must have open arms. 
Jesus appears to these two disciples, they were not having faith, were they? They were not believing what the prophets said. They were not understanding. They were looking at the evidence with their eyes, but they were not looking at the evidence from God's holy word or with their hearts and realized that Jesus was a lie, very much so. And even though that was true, Jesus appears amongst them and he's got open arms. He's not condemning them. He's helping them. He's looking to show them the way, the truth, and the life. He's the great physician that wants to heal them up in their brokenness and show them they're infinitely valuable to him. This is what we've got to tell the world. We live in a world that is broken, and they need to know that they are infinitely valuable to the Lord Jesus Christ, and help is right there. All they've got to do is ask. They've got to ask. So I want to finish with this. Are you serving him? You know, turning away from selfish ambition is not easy. The truth is, is we are constantly inwardly focused on our own needs, our own goals and desires. To serve other people is not an easy task by any stretch because it means that we're going to have to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Christ. And that's not something that we find easy to do at all. The self-giving of our Lord who died on the cross once and for all to atone for humanity's sin is an example of the way we're supposed to love the world. We're supposed to serve them, to love them, to care for them, to reach out to them and tell them that God really loves them too. We do that. Why? Because with the same comfort we receive from Christ, we want to share that with the world. With joy, we cast our nets of love and hospitality out into the world. To anyone God sends our way, we recognize that they're going through storms and they're going through difficulties and maybe they've sinned so much that they think they're disqualified from heaven, but they're certainly not. Any more than Peter was disqualified from service. They're not disqualified, but they do have to make a choice. And that choice is to reach out. And say, Lord Jesus Christ, I want to serve you with all I have. I want to be part of your family. I want to know you. And we've got to be that light to tell them how to do that, how to get out of that storm, or at least how to stay in the storm, persevere, and still feel gladness and thanksgiving. Are you able to do that? Are you willing to do that? I know you're able. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do anything that God asks you to do. But are you willing to do that? What would it take? Ultimately, for us who are pressed on every single side with tribulations that threaten the stability of our lives, to stand firm in our faith and stand up and say, I love all of you, whoever you are, wherever you are, whoever God sends my way, I love you because he loves you and I will do whatever I can to help you. What would it take for you to get that attitude? You know what the truth is that most Christians It says, I think in the studies, about 90% of all the people in the church don't do anything. And only about 10% of the people do all the work. What would it take for all 100% of the people in the church to work? What would it take for everybody in the church to say, I want to serve Jesus. I want my faith to have action. What would it take? I hope and pray that if you're listening to this sermon, you're saying, I don't serve him. I don't have a purpose that I can see. I'm not even sure what my spiritual gifts are. I hope and pray that if you're sitting back saying, I have sin in my life and therefore I'm disqualified, I hope you see that as a lie from the devil that certainly ask him to forgive you and your sins are forgiven, washed white as snow, and you're ready to serve with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now serve, serve, do whatever he asks, and then rejoice because he loves you and he loves the people he sends too. He loves them too as well. So with the same comfort you have received, please share that comfort with the world. Because that's what we're called to do as Christ ambassadors. Amen and amen. May God bless you today.